Hello, my name is Aaron Stritzel. Pastor Ryan is away this weekend. If you're new, you're our guest. Please let us know you're watching by texting the word welcome to 480-530-7234. Also, if you don't get Pastor Ryan's weekly emails, you can sign up for that, going to our homepage at wellchurch.org, scanning all the way down to the bottom, and you can sign up for those weekly emails then. Uh, today, we continue on our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. It's week two. I wanted to start just by sharing a little bit of my view of Scripture and my history uh, of how it was taught to view the Bible. Uh, I grew up in a conservative evangelical family tradition. Uh, lots of good from that, but I will say I was taught to read the Bible in a very black and white way, what, what some people call inerrant, which just means the Bible is flawless, it's perfect in historical context and also theological context. And as I was an adult uh, walking through under my undergrad in biblical studies, these questions began to surface. I saw some nuances. I saw things didn't seem to fit in the nice, neat package that I was taught that they should fit in. Well, that sent me on a little bit of a spiral where eventually I was like frustrated with the Bible. I saw a lot of harmful ways the Bible was being used as well. And that sent me actually even deeper to explore the Bible in its historical context, uh, which came to life in new and different ways. I also say I was given new lenses as which to read the Bible, seeing it in, a, in its historical context. And some things were prescriptive and some things were descriptive and some things were a giant leap forward for its time, knowing I'm reading the Bible two, sometimes three or more thousand years after these stories were first told or some of these stories were first written down. The Ten Commandments. Uh, stepping back for a little bit, since this is just the second week we're talking about it, the Ten Commandments were given by uh, God through Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, the story goes that the Israelites' people were just liberated from Egyptian bondage. And here, you could look at these Ten Commandments 3,000 years later and say, man, this whole religion is legalistic. It's about, about a bunch of rules and about, you know, thou shalt not. And that's a way of looking at it. But also, if you step back, seeing this in the context that they were given, here's a group of people that have just been freed. How do we live? What does it look like to be human, a free human? Can I do this? Should somebody kill somebody else? What, what are the rules now that we can do whatever we want? Are there certain guidelines that are more helpful for our tribe, our group, our community? And here, basically what you have is, and what I would say is the meta narrative of all the Bible, which is God covenanting with a group of people saying, I wanna teach you how to live in right relationship to yourself, to each other, to all of creation so that everything, all of the created order can flourish. I still think that is the crux of the good news for us today is that God is working to reconcile, to bring all things together so that all things can flourish. It's good news, which is good news for all people that there is a God that created and that wants all things to flourish. And in order for all things to flourish, what that does mean, though, is we have to think and move beyond ourselves. And that, that's a fundamental issue that all humans, myself included, we struggle with. Sometimes I think more or first or almost exclusively about me instead of my partner or my 
family. And when that happens, sometimes it's okay, but sometimes it really hurts others around me. And this is what the biblical story is all about. Moving beyond just me to think of we, to think from a more world-centric position. So the Ten Commandments, just briefly, are as follows. First commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, which we're going to talk about today, is you shall not make for yourself a graven image. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Fourth commandment, remember the day, or a Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Commandment five, honor your father and mother. Commandment six, you shall not kill. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, you shall not lie. The ninth is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The tenth commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. At first glance, you can look at these things, again, as a bunch of lists of thou shalt nots, but they also make sense even to us 3,000 years ago, or 3,000 years later. They make sense not to covet, not to kill, not to lie. It makes sense to order your sort of community. What Pastor Ryan talked about, sort of house rules last week, right? It makes sense to have guidelines that help all things flourish. So Walter Brueggemann describes the Ten Commandments. And Walter Brueggemann is a Hebrew Bible scholar, um, one of the, the top Hebrew Bible scholars today. He describes the Ten Commandments stating that the Ten Commandments are an announcement that the world is under new governance. They are rules, these Ten Commandments, for freedom and justice that contrast with the bondage and injustice of Pharaoh. The covenant at Sinai is a warning that if you do not keep these commands, you will be back in the grip of Pharaoh and his insatiable demands. Now it's interesting that the name of Pharaoh is never given. And perhaps that's because it's not really about a single historical person, but it's about people who rule with greed and power and injustice that take advantage of others. In other words, here's some guidelines to help keep you from finding yourself back serving the gods of power, wealth, and greed. The first three commandments are about honoring Yahweh, the God who freed the Hebrew people out of the land of Egypt. This week, we're going to explore the second command. And I wanted to, to read the text in, in its fullness. It's just a few verses, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. It says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that it is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commands. The key word here we're going to hone in on is idol. Do not have or make for yourself an idol. The, the word idol in the Hebrew is pasel, which is more accurately translated as image. So in what some biblical translations say, do not make for yourself an idol, is better translated as don't make for yourself an image. Passel, image. Now let's be honest. We don't live in a culture today where people bow down and worship images uh, physically, for the most part. I mean, it's going to be bizarre if you walk over to your, your neighbor's house and all of a sudden they have this giant bull's head and they bow down and worship it or they have this craft out ginormous ant with candles all around it and they worship that every evening. I mean, it's not going to happen. So today we interpret image a little bit differently, but 3,000 years ago, stepping into the culture, all the cultures 
had images of gods that they would worship. So to think of not having an image was a bizarre and giant leap forward. I mean, we see how hard it was for the, the people of Israel in just a few chapters later where Moses' brother, Aaron, <laughs> builds this golden calf and they worship this golden calf. And they say, this, Aaron says, this is the gods who brought you out of Egypt. We see that they see all the cultures around them have these images. I want something where I can see and sort of put my mind to. Why does God care about not forming an image? Why not just allow them, create an image and say, there it is. Again, Walter Brueggemann tells that the second command was fundamentally a guideline to help combat the human tendency to domesticate Yahweh or God. If one could craft an image and simply say this, this is God, then you've contained God. God is here, which means God is not somewhere else. However, I think here in the second command that God is making a point that no image can fully represent who God is or how God is in the world. Uh, if you recall Moses' story, his calling, basically, where he encounters God in the burning bush, and, and, and he, God says, I want you to go back to Israel and set my people free. And Moses is making up all these excuses, and finally he's like, well, who do I say sent me? And we read this text in Hebrew or in Exodus three fourteen, where God answers Moses and says, I am who I am. God says further, you shall tell the Israelites, I am has sent you. Another way to translate this is, I will be who I will be. Not very helpful if you're trying to get a clear description, right? I mean, the word that often comes in our um, Hebrew Bible that's translated often, if you read the word Lord in caps, comes from the, the root word Haya in Hebrew. It simply means to be. <laughs> I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am that which is. Not exactly phrases that narrow things down. It's as, almost as if God was saying, you can't capture me in a name. In a book uh, written by Richard Rohr titled Falling Upward, which is a fantastic book. I just finished reading it for, I don't know, fourth or fifth maybe sixth time, but it's all about second half of life and how oftentimes it comes through some sort of falling, some sort of suffering. It pushes us into a deeper, more meaningful way of living. But he says the best definition of God is simply mystery. And, and he goes on and says, mystery isn't something that you can't know, so you just give up on, well, nobody knows anything about God. No, mystery is that which can be endlessly known. In other words, it's both comforting and troubling. It's troubling because, let's be honest, we all want answers, and that's not necessarily bad. We would love if we could just grasp God in an image, um, but that's just not the case. And um, the comforting thing or the exciting thing is that means that God can be known and experienced in new and fresh in different ways every single day for the rest of our lives. But today, 2021, we don't, again, have um, statutes of gods. We don't create these images of gods. 
but I would suggest that I think one of the ways that we do this is we do this through doctrines or belief systems or, or dogmas that sometimes are so narrowly defined. And again, part of me understands it's a human desire to try to formulate some way of understanding, making sense of who God is. I don't think that's wrong. I just think sometimes we narrow it down so much that we, we create so much definition. And it's been my experience that God seems so much bigger than any box that we begin to form. So instead of an image as a physical idol, I think sometimes we create these systems and belief systems that, hey, God's here. God is in this place, which makes, well, is God not in the other place? I mean, don't we think God is everywhere? Well, God is with these people because they have their beliefs right. And anybody who stands against them, God is against. And you see where this can begin to get harmful, right? I mean, we see this even in what we would call Christian nationalism today, where, I mean, let's just face it, America, for some people, is an image, is an idol that, oh, we are the city on a hill, that we are God's chosen nation, and that whoever stands against us is standing against God. Now, I think God is in all places, in all nations, and that all nations have to answer for the things that we do, the way that we treat people. But Christian nationalism is a major issue in our world. and Probably the, the image that we all can resonate and see most clearly today. What's underneath a lot of this, though, is two stances in the world. An open stance or a closed stance. By creating an image, we have a closed stance. We grasp God. God is here. We understand God, which makes us closed off. And, but throwing that out keeps us open, keeps us curious, keeps us seeing God in new and different ways. And I think that's fundamentally, while hard at times, a pathway to growth. We can see, by the way, this closed off stance in the lives of many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, in first century Palestine, who were closed off to the, the new thing that God was doing through Jesus, which is kind of scary when you think about it. These religious leaders, believing they were doing the work of God, were actually fighting a very, uh, against the things that God was doing in their day and age because they had a closed stance, because they thought, we have God. This is who God is. This is... And they weren't open to understanding nuances and maybe something new and different. The new thing that God was up to, which I would argue is true of every generation. We, every generation struggles with that, right? We've been passed down certain things that are very helpful, but can also be limiting to the ways that God wants to lead us in new and different ways in every single generation. There was a specific religious leader called Nicodemus who was curious enough to approach Jesus. Now, he did it under the guise of the evening where no one else could see, but he engaged Jesus and curious about what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus talks about this idea of being born anew or what some people call born again, right? And Nicodemus wasn't quite sure what that meant. So Jesus talks to him and says this, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Interesting metaphors, right? Water and spirit. Neither one of those can you really grasp, right? What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. 
The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, understanding we have this desire to kind of grasp, to make sense of things. I mean, that makes sense. But then it's like, why do we even bother with any of it? If God is mystery, again, why do we even bother? Well, instead of grasping, I mean, you can't grasp wind or you can't really grasp water, right? It slips through your fingers. Perhaps it's much more about being open. Again, the open stance first, the closed stance. About being open so you become more and more sensitive to where the wind is blowing, to what God is doing, to those little nudges within you. Pay attention to those things. If you're going through the water, pay attention to where the water, where the Spirit is moving you and what that means. And so in, in that way, not grasping to anything that's fixed in any kind of image that's like, okay, here it is, but being open to un uncovering and discovering things in new and different ways. Um, in closing, I'm reminded, one of my, my favorite worship songs of all times, written by Matt, uh, Matt and Jackie Lefevers, actually, is a, 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 a song titled, Break the Cages. I'd like to read the first verse to you. God of everyone, not only those who think like me, King of every truth, not only those that I believe, Alpha and Omega, and Every letter in between, the space between the stars could not contain your glory. It's as if God is found in the alpha, in the beginning, and the end, but also everything in between. There's no one image that says this is. It, it's all. It all is. The chorus, come break the cages we have tried to place you in. You are more. You are more. So much greater than these words we've draped you in. You are more, you are more than this. You are more, you have always been. For me, this is a modern day interpretation of the second command to make no image. To say, yeah, we have to use words. Yeah, we have to use these things. But we also, when we do, we recognize that God is so much more. That these images, these words, these ideas can never fully grasp who God is. That God is more than all these things. I, I've been really reading a lot of, uh, he's a Jungian analyst called James Hollis, and in his newest book titled Praxis, Reflections on the Journey We Call Life, he writes this following. I'm just going to read a portion of his book here. He says that mature spirituality is one that allows the old images to go because they were only that, images. The image is not the mystery. In other words, fingers pointing to the moon. Don't mistake the fingers for the moon. They're just fingers. Some may be more helpful than others. Some images, some ideas, some thoughts may be helpful for you at certain parts of your journey. And then later on, what, I, what I'm learning is that healthy spirituality, sometimes you outgrow those images or you're just in a different season. They don't speak to you in the same way. That actually mature spirituality invites us to constantly update, to grow to expand, to uncover in new and different ways. So I want to close our time with a couple questions, really. They're simple, but I think hopefully they're ones that you can sort of meditate on for this next week. Are there images or beliefs in your life that once served you well, 
but are in need of an upgrade? Are there things or ideas that you're like, I don't really actually believe that anymore. I used to think God did this or loved only this group of people or the Bible was fit neatly. Are there certain things that you're like, man, I just need to let go of that. Believe me, I know that that sounds okay and easy, but when, when they're sort of integrated into our lives, sometimes that's hard. Uh, let me just give you permission and in a hopefully gentle way to say, yeah, let those things go. If they're not serving you well, if they're not helping you grow and connect with God in new and different ways, let them go. And again, that can be hard because sometimes we're like, well, what's going to replace them? What, what, what can I grab onto? Well, you might learn that the maturity actually comes when you let them go and you're okay in the mystery. You're okay with saying, I'm not sure now what I think about whatever that might be. I'm okay with letting that go for now. Are you willing to let God break any and all cages? Are you willing to let God be God? To not create an image, to say no, no image can contain God. I refuse to domesticate God because like the wind or the water, you cannot fully grasp it. But I want to be open and sensitive to the ways that God is moving, to that little wind shift the little water shift to begin to pay attention to those little nudges deep within my heart. God is mystery. Mystery is not that which cannot be known, but as Richard Rohr says, that which can be endlessly known. Let's pray. Gracious God, we're gathered from all over right now uh, and we take a moment to just say, I release things that no longer serve me ways of viewing and understanding and, and being, whether that's God or even other humans. I was taught to say, though they were evil or bad or, or not good enough or they're outside, maybe I feel an invitation to release those things now. And God, we recognize that perhaps the best word to describe you is ultimately mystery. The spirit, wind, and water. We cannot fully grasp you. At the same time, oh, we want to learn more. We want to dive deeper into the water. While we cannot fully grasp the water, we can sure play around in it quite a bit. And we can sure become more sensitive to the ways that it's leading our lives. So Spirit, we invite you to lead and guide in our own lives individually, in our families. May we be open to the ways you are moving in our generation. In your name we pray.